Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Scott Wurzbacher, and today we're going to hear some adventure stories that might cause you to second guess your own next adventure. Our guest is Wes Lawson, general manager at Jesse Brown's Outdoors, where he specializes in adventure travel outfitting. Wes works alongside of Bill Barty, who was also a guest of this show, episode 16. Together, Bill and Wes co-host the Carolina Outdoors on WBT News Talk 1110. Wes and his wife, Amy, live in Charlotte, North Carolina with their son and two dogs. Prior to becoming general manager at Jesse Brown's, Wes served as the associate dean of students at Hamden Sydney College. He, along with David Klein, who was dean of students, expanded the college's student leadership programs and adventure travel footprint that he experienced himself as a student. During his time at Hamden Sydney College, he led student trips along the Appalachian Trail, through Belize, and throughout the mountains surrounding Lake Yohoa, Honduras. These were service-related trips, but in between the serving, Wes found himself in some precarious situations, all in the name of great, great adventure. And he's here to share some of these stories with us today. I'm excited because this is really going to be some good campfire talk. Wes, welcome to the campfire. Scott, man, let's strike a match. I'm glad to do this. This is going to be fun. <laughs> I'm so excited. Wes, can you just give us a quick little overview of who you are and uh, just tell us tell us about uh, Wes Lawson here in Charlotte, North Carolina before we get started? Sure. Yeah. So before uh, I came to work at Jesse Brown's, before that, I was in education. I worked in higher education for uh, 13, 14 years um, while here. In a once with a little tech startup company teaching people to kind of change careers and write software. Before then, I was at Wake Forest Business School Uptown, which was really exciting to me because it was working professionals earning an MBA after hours. Um, and I had earned my master's degree while I was working and commuting, and my son had just been born. So the thought of helping people learn something today to take to work tomorrow was really pretty great. Uh, but most of my time was at Hamden Sydney College in Virginia, which is uh, the 10th oldest college in the country. It's a men's college, which makes it a little bit different. It's also my alma mater, um, but I was the associate dean of students there. Um, if you or your son was in my office, he was either in trouble or he was in the leadership program. So I saw two different ends of the spectrum, um, which was pretty fun because sometimes you get somebody from the I'm in trouble side and help them get to the, I'm a student leader side. So that was, that was exciting. Um, but you spend enough time working for your alma mater and you begin to realize it's, it's time to, to get going and try new things. So we moved down here. I um, get it. And I, and I got to stop you for a second because like, I didn't know this part. I don't know if we talked about you and I had a really great conversation, but you just mm -hmm. said people come to your office either because they're in trouble or they're mm -hmm. in a leadership program, right? Yeah. Yeah, very confusing. And you know a little bit about both trouble and leadership. That's how I got ultimately kind of involved because I oversaw a leadership program that I participated in mm -hmm. as a college freshman, which kind of launched all of these adventures because we had this offsite retreat. And the two keynote speakers were our former president, who Samuel Wilson, who's a retired three star general. Merrill's Marauder hero in World War II. Just, I mean, his Wikipedia page is unreal. Um, so we have that guy who's this great storyteller, leader of young men, and then a man who became a really important figure in my life, Ben Mathis, who at the time was running a group called Rivers of the World. And they would use rivers as a means to get to very remote places to help those people identify problems to help them overcome them. He was running the only nonprofit in Congo during the Civil War. So it's Indiana Jones and like 
Eisenhower were our two speakers, wow. basically. Yeah. Um, and as an 18 year old who didn't really get too excited about college, um, that was like, oh, this is incredible. And at the end of the weekend, then Mathis says, wouldn't it be great if we went to Belize and built on a project I've got going on there? Who would be interested? And I didn't know any of these upperclassmen. There were two freshmen, me and another person, and then all these upperclassmen. And I was like, me. And I'm not a hand raiser. I was like, I'm going. Yeah. So I, I went to David Klein's office and was like, we got to make this happen. Um, and bugged him about it for a year. And my sophomore year, we went um, with a group of about eight or 10 people. I knew one of them. And half of that group are among my closest friends 20 plus years later. Um, so it was, it was a very formative experience for me. My college experience and probably part of my professional career wouldn't have happened uh, because of that. So to me, it, became, it was a foundation for me. It was a touchstone kind of experience. And then I got to take over that program and build it more and take students to other countries and, and work on other projects and bring the vice chairman of the board of trustees along and say, this is what we're doing. Yeah. This is unlike what other schools have going on, which was just a bunch of fun. That moment when you raised your hand, like there was something yeah. right there, right? So we're going to talk about that first trip and then how that yeah. turned into you leading these trips. But can you just tell me about that moment? Like, do you remember that moment when you raised your hand and what you were feeling and experiencing at that time? Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I had been in college for two weeks. Um, two weeks at a men's college. So it's a little bit different. Um, there's a certain level of posturing, but also like there is this sense of your, there is a commonality, small yeah. school. I mean, I graduated with a hundred, I'm sorry, 220 people, schools, a thousand students or whatever. So small community. Um, mm -hmm. But I remember spending a weekend basically not talking to other students. Um, at work, I am an extrovert, but I am by nature an introvert. And so if Scott, if you and I were on a bus trip across the country, I'm going to lean on you to start that conversation because odds yeah. are I'm not going to be the one in my own time, especially as a student. I was still trying to figure out my place and I felt like it's the upperclassmen's responsibility to bring me in. So all of a sudden there was this challenge, this challenge issued of kind of like, I bet you guys won't do this. We should go, but I bet you don't have the courage to go to the jungle. And I was just like, yeah, I do. Because to me, it was like a challenge was issued and I kind of felt like Marty McFly in Back to the Future. Like, what'd you call me? You know, don't <laughs> call me chicken. Um, but also it was like, like, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I didn't yeah. really know what I wanted to study in college, but I knew that these two men had incredible stories and it all centered around service. And I liked that idea, like this idea of like, hey, we can go have an incredible time, but also help people. Like that's, that's pretty awesome. To me, it was just like my hand went up and then I was like, uh-oh, what did I just do? And then afterwards I was outside and here comes Ben Mathis walking up to his super cool Defender 90, you know, Land Rover. And he's like, you think you guys will do it? And I was like, we'll see you in Belize next year. Um, and we did. And I mean, he's been one of my, my most important mentors of the last 22 years. Um, for th thick and thin and some pretty sketchy situations. Um, but I also learned through him and by him how to avoid a lot of that. So what it takes to kind of create these contacts overseas, how to work those relationships and how to not be a victim. How to work relationships, how to not be a victim, man, go, let's go there. Let's, let's go to, let's go on this trip. You, so you're going on a trip as a college yeah. student with, with Indiana Jones. So we end up in Belize this first time. I knew where Belize was because I looked on a map. Um, I had been to the Yucatan the year before on a service trip uh, with my parents' church, but this was about four and a half, five hours south. So we end up in this little town called Orange Walk, which is in northern Belize. It's essentially a waypoint um, for farming. And we're, we're staying at a little hotel on, on the new river called the St. Christopher Hotel. Across the street is this incredible Chinese restaurant called Sing Wong. So Belize used to be part of the British Empire. Mm. So anybody in the empire can kind of move freely. So there is a Cantonese contingent in Belize. So we're sitting outside waiting to go in. And this little pickup truck slow rolls by. And Ben Mathis is 
a man with a presence. And he gets up and walks with his hand behind his back to that car and says something, and it speeds off. And he comes back and says, what just, what just happened? He said, that guy had something in his hand that looked suspicious to me. What did he have in his hand? Because it looked like a laser pointer. And laser pointers at night are usually attached to something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of right between the lines. Um, and he said, I told him to get out of here or we'd have a problem. It was a real quick exchange. Off we went. So we go inside, have dinner, whatever. Walking across the street back to the hotel, um, you hear you know, all the typical sounds of of a Latin town. Cars backfiring, trucks without exhaust, dogs barking, chickens. Um, sounds and smells that actually, over time, I really like. Um, it's just like it, it reminds you of a, of a place. But there's also this really shrill, deep sound that makes you understand why people are inherently afraid of the dark. And they're howler monkeys. It's the loudest animal, I think, on Earth. Um, and their their voice echoes through their hollow jawbone. And it mm-hmm. is shrill. And I, over the next 10 years, got pretty used to the sound. <laughs> but I remember stopping in a street and going, oh, oh. Because we were staying in the hotel one night, and then we would be camping on Honey Camp Lagoon oh, for the rest. So we go go out there, get set up. I had camped out at that point um, once or twice in my life, a couple times, but not a lot. Um, since then, you know, hundreds of times. But I'd never camped out on the edge of kind of a lagoon and a jungle. And so I had actually gone to Jesse Brown's. Bill Barty and Bill Turpin set me up. Um, and I had this really big Petzl headlamp, yellow headlamp, two yeah. beams, battery pack in the in the back, like you're going to be a coal miner. Yeah. Um, and I had gotten out of my tent to go use the bathroom. And there was two things you had to know. One is the outhouse before you used it, you were supposed to kick the pipe so that the bats inside would fly out before you got in there. And I was like, you know what? That's a little too high maintenance for <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I'm just going to walk over here. And I turned my headlamp on and a bat came swooping in and hit it, broke the thing. It's a Petzl like what? climbing thing, broke it. It's like, well, this is a problem. And it scared me to death. But then I realized standing there in disbelief um, that I could hear things. And it wasn't like I hear voices or anything, but you can hear this scurrying. So I picked up the headlamp, the low beam kind of worked and you can hear the tarantulas walking. They're big enough that as the leaves and the grass bends, you hear it. And I thought, you know, no one said there'd be tarantulas here. And I stood there kind of going, well, this is going to be a long week because I don't really <laughs> love spiders that are, I mean, they'd fit in your hand, right? Yeah. Um, and you could see these little trails where the leaf cutter ants go through. And so and during the day, you'd see a leaf come by. It's just be millions of these things. I stood there for a second going, I don't know if I'm going to go to sleep. I'm thinking, I'm thinking uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when they're in the cave and there's like bugs all over the floor. And uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, his girlfriend is freaking out because there's just like animals all over the place. <laughs> it, it got real. Um, so, you know, I was like, okay, well, this is, this is interesting. But we were, we were, we had a construction project to do. Yeah. So, you know, did our thing, worked hard during the day, building, putting a roof on a two-story structure, no scaffolding, no ropes. It would be me who had never done this, two stories up with my legs wrapped around a stringer and two of the people handing me these huge pieces of wood and then somebody using a preacher's helper, which is a pole, mm-hmm. pushing it up. And I'd swing the other end up to David Klein, our Adidas students. And I learned how to roof from him. Um, and I realized pretty quickly, it's like, I used to not think I would like heights. I'm not afraid of heights. I don't think I ever was, but I was, I was never comfortable up there. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of like thing one, like, boom, bat didn't get me. Tarantulas didn't carry me away. I can do this. And I liked the physicality of what we were doing. Yeah. But I was really caught off guard one night. We're sitting around our campfire, um, relaxing, telling stories and dirty jokes. And a man comes walking through the grass who we knew was Pedro who lived down the the way around Honey Camp Lagoon. And he had a blue, blue plastic bag, like you might get at Walmart. 
and he's speaking um, Garifuna or Garifuna, which is kind of their, their um, Creole sort of pidgin English. Really hard to understand until you just don't think about it. You follow the rhythms and everything. The Blue Path plastic bag, which was just a blue plastic bag, he said would keep the contents cold because it was blue. This is dubious science. Um, inside of it was a two-day deceased armadillo he had killed, and he brought it over to us to share. He was going to cook it. Um, I don't know much about cooking armadillo, um, but I know that food that's been kept in a plastic bag in Central America for two days probably is something I'm not going to eat. Yeah. But he threw it down on the fire and just started cooking it. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. Did you know that the members of my real estate team, W Realty Group, are listening to their own voices that call to adventure by setting big goals? Some of those goals include planning trips to Bali and the Kingdom of Bhutan, buying investment homes and running the Chicago Marathon. At W Realty Group, we support and encourage these big goals and wanna help turn them into reality. We're currently looking to add new members to the team. If you know a great real estate agent in the Charlotte, North Carolina area that would benefit from being part of our team, please send a text, an email, or give me a call. And know that when you support W Realty Group, you're also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. Um, burnt tires smell better. I will tell you <laughs> that. Um, that. That remains one of the only meals in Central America, Mexico, Spain, anywhere I've lived that I've turned down um, because mm, the plastic bags don't keep your, your food cold. There is a line. Um, there is a line. There, there is. And, and that one I knew I would not cross. I ate everything else, right? So Belize has a national dish. It's a, it's a little creature called a gibna, which is also called a, a wajote or a watusa. It's a paca, which is the fourth or fifth largest rodent in the world. The second largest being a beaver, right? And beavers can get enormous. This looks like the cross between like a beaver head. So it's got this squared out face, spots like a fawn, but then it kind of looks like a, like a jackrabbit. Like it's four, four legs, front four legs are shorter. Kind of has like an, like an emphysema kind of wheeze. And they taste like uh, store brand stewed meat. Not I'm getting bad. a I'm getting um, a jackalope vibe here. Kind of, kind of. It's <laughs> called the Royal Rodent down there because in the 60s the or Royal 70s, when, when Queen Elizabeth visited, she was served it. Um, so it came up for dinner one night, and and somebody's like, "I bet you won't eat that." I was like, "I bet I will. I'm hungry, and <laughs> as long as I have something to wash it down with, let's go." Um, not, not eating the armadillo, but I'm going to, I'm going to try this rodent. Yeah. So the armadillo, you know, yeah. had not been refrigerated. Um, and it wasn't like it was cold down there. Um, so the, yeah, armadillo remains the, the meal. I think that yeah. I was like, I cannot do this. Um, the col the culinary adventure was, uh, was intense down there. So what, Wes, what, what happened on this first trip that led you to the next phase, which is now leading these kinds of trips? So, um, that was my sophomore year. Um, we did a trip again, my junior year, and then my senior year, things kind of got a little bit wonky and, um, David Klein could not lead the trip. So, a recent graduate or two, and I kind of served as leader. So I had keys of the van. Uh, ben Mathis was there. Um, we were at a different location, but uh, I was a 21 or 22-year-old college senior driving a van around northern Belize mm -hmm. with a bunch of other people um, because I had been there enough. I made airport runs. I, I mean, supply runs alone, which is insane and something I don't recommend. Take somebody else with you. Um, but like I might be gone for half the day getting supplies, hauling in, you know, concrete and stuff. Um, and so by the time I started working for the college, it was kind of expected, like I expected to go. Um, and we started doing two trips a year. Um, and the opportunity to go to Honduras came up and I thought that'd be interesting. Um, I remember hearing about Hurricane Mitch in the nineties. I liked to travel. I studied Spanish in college. I was a Spanish and political science major. Right. So I was like, hey, Banana Republic, 
Nice. Maybe they need a new president. I can do this. Um, and we got down there and our project manager, our fixer is a man named Israel Gonzalez. And he okay. is one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. An engineer by trade. He's a pastor. His wife is a physician. Um, and he knows everybody. And he's super positive. And he meets us at the airport in Honduras in San Pedro Sula. And immediately I knew, I was like, this guy is the real deal. We had a plan to go into the mountains around Lake Yehoah, which is right in the middle of, of Honduras. Okay. Um, and it actually gets kind of cool in the mountains, but you know, this, the Pan-American Highway goes right through. Um, we're going to be building a clinic that is designed to bring people from the mountains here to get treatment. Um, and I thought, this is really, this is going to be amazing. And we're on the highway heading to the the inn where we were staying on Lake Yehoah up and down these mountains and you know road conditions are suspicious at best and I'm driving a, a Toyota van that depending on where you're from is either a high ace or a high ace 14 people in it all of our gear on wheels the size of what you have on a go-kart doing 130 kilometers an hour following Israel in his F-350 dually loaded down and we were just flying but you know cars zipping you got you got vans and buses coming and horse-drawn buggies and it's kind of like this is nuts um and it was a manual so i'm just like flying through this you're driving i'm driving yeah my boss is riding shotgun and i'm driving and breaking a sweat the whole time thinking this is nuts but like if i don't catch up with that guy i don't know where we're going so there's this real thing of like we got to get there we don't have a map Blackberries didn't do anything down there. Like this is pre iPhone. And all of a sudden, almost past his truck, it's broken down. So I lock up the brakes and tell everybody, you know, bail out in case we get hit, get out, stand over there. And Israel and I start troubleshooting this thing. And I have a picture somewhere of me on the roof of his F350 with a satellite phone with that antenna pushed up, trying to call a friend who may know what in the world is wrong. And as I'm doing that, this little SUV pulls up and a man who looks just like Mr. Clean gets out because you don't want to be here right now. And I kind of looked around and said, who is he talking to? Because you don't want to be here right now. I said, yeah, I know. Trucks broke down. He goes, you need, to, you need to move it. It's like, we can't. It's broken down and it's big. Like we can't push it up a mountain. So I jumped down and start talking to him. And he goes, who's that? He points to Israel. And says, his name's Israel Gonzalez. He's with uh, Christian Community in Honduras. And the guy turns and walks away. He's like, well, this is really rude. He's got on like a safari vest, shiny head. He's big. And he comes back and he goes, your guy checks out. And I said, I know he does. I know he checks out, but who are you? Like I was getting really angry. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not really big and I'm not shiny bald head. Like I don't have that presence. Yeah. And he pulls his vest back and I see a badge. I'm like, okay. And a Colt 1911. I was like, who are you? And he introduced himself as a chief warrant officer for with the army. And he was responsible for all of the army criminal investigations in Latin America. Mm. So it's like the army's version of NCIS. Yeah. And I said, well, what are you doing here? He goes, well, the only U.S. base in Central South America is in Honduras. And we're on our way back there. Let us help you. Load all your stuff in here. Put your people in your van. We're going to tow him to the to the lodge wow so we did um and as like we get there thank you guys so much i apologize for being kind of abrupt with you we're unloading bags and i get to the last one and unload this like gym bag i didn't recognize and the little sergeant major who had been driving um put his hand on mine very firmly and said that's mine it stays so i don't mean to cross the line but this feels a lot like a mossberg 500 pump and he said, it, that is. He said, why do you have a 12-gauge shotgun in a gym bag? He said, because we can't carry rifles, and that has to be hidden. It can't be in plain sight. Like, got it. So we found out that that uh, they are there to assist in you know, counter-narcotics trapping operations, training uh, the local police and military, um, right. and, they, and they had a, a person with them, a, a State Department person who, who kind of needed protection, who also joined us, but was really dodgy about questions but they said hey come tour um task force bravo it's 
it's really neat if you could see this it's a huge uh, military complex in in honduras it's where the uh, honduran air force academy is uh, and we would see helicopters flying over u.s helicopters doing like counter narcotics operations but what came of that was this mr clean fellow handed me a card and he said that number on there is for the tactical operations center and if you're an american at risk of losing life limb or eyesight and you're in this vicinity, you call that number, you tell them where you are. Somebody's gonna come for you. And it was at that moment I realized we've been doing these trips for a couple of years. Yeah. And we were not prepared for contingencies. We weren't prepared for a vehicle to break down. We weren't prepared uh, to have somebody stop us, basically. Um, didn't know that there was this military base there. Didn't know there was such a thing as a tactical operations command center to call. And it changed my view of how to prepare for trips um, completely because yeah. when you're on the side of the highway with a satellite phone which you have been convinced is like going to work no matter what and you can't connect to anybody and this vehicle is not moving and you have 12 or 14 people who you're responsible for on the side of a very busy transcontinental highway it gets a little bit dicey a little bit fast yeah. and uh, that's when I started thinking man um, what have we gotten ourselves into and how do we get out of it? Like, how do, how do we get yeah. out of this problem? Yeah. You're in a, like, you're in a, I mean, a pretty intense, like dangerous situation and like not even totally realizing it. And I, it's just interesting. Cause again, like listening to your story, it seems like there was a moment of almost awakening where it was like, Oh my gosh, like I didn't realize what I had gotten myself into. And then like, once you wake up and realize like where you are and what you're surrounded by, like you can't, you can't go backwards to that sort of place of ignorance, I'll say. Yeah. You, you, once you, once you see it, once you experience it, you can't. Um, and so, you know, where it really hit me again was that same trip We're up in the mountains and um, the truck I was driving is a, is a Kia that we don't get in the U.S. It's called yeah. K-1500. It's a cab over pickup truck. So it looks like a fire truck almost, but on little wheels, it's a little diesel. And when I put all my guys in the back and a cement mixer and we're going up the mountains because we're going to put concrete floor down in a home to reduce respiratory distress. Okay. Uh, we can do that. We can knock out 80, 80% of these breathing problems. But the problem is um, those mountains get a lot of rain. And it's not a road, it's a trail. Um, so you have to time, when you're following a vehicle, you have to time the driving the right way that that vehicle can make the turn and accelerate without you getting behind because if somebody pops the clutch or they have to make a three-point turn, somebody's going over the mountain. Yeah. And the fog was so thick that for a long time, I didn't realize that was the edge of the mountain. Mm. We had made a turn and I looked down and it was a solid like 900 feet yeah. just down. And I thought, man, um, these I'm responsible for these 18 to 22 year olds and their parents want to see them. And I want to get home to see Amy. Like this is, this is kind of scary. Yeah. But going up is fine. Going down is absolutely terrifying because it's muddy and, you know, steering changes in the mud. And when you're overloaded, it changes dynamics of a turn. It pushes you out of the turn and you can't ride the brakes. And what I didn't realize was the brakes were awful in this thing. And so I would try to downshift, but then people and a cement mixer would move forward. And so we would have to go down the mountain with the bumper of this thing pressed against the larger F-350 mm. and ride down like that. And uh, some guys thought it was funny, but what I found out was they were singing and uh, laughing. So at dinner that night, it's like, so, I don't know about y'all, but I was terrified because I was terrified that you would get hurt, that you would fall out and I would run over you. And what do we do? Like we, I, I could never, I could never go on. Um, and one of the guys said, you know, Dean Lawson, we were singing laughing because we were so scared. We didn't know what else to do. So it's wow. a big bunch of rough and tough guys um, yeah. telling filthy jokes and singing songs because the reality is they thought something bad was going to happen too. And one of them said, we just figured that you and Dean Klein and Israel kind of knew what you were doing. And so we were going to focus on that. And it's like, I appreciate the vote of confidence. <laughs> yeah, we, so they're just distracting their minds. I mean, they're they're afraid and they're just distracting their minds. Yeah. 
And, and we just kind of came together and like, well, well we're going to make this thing work. So if you trust me and I trust you, great. Next trip's going to be better prepared. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and so, you know, we would work towards some of that. But um, what we also experienced that I wasn't quite really ready for was some of, you know, I don't like stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get kind of defensive about some of it. Like I, I get really touchy about how people refer to, to our friends from Central America. And so I was kind of in that mindset of like, man, we're not going to get stopped at a checkpoint. That's ridiculous. And we did like every day. And so I'd be sitting there with a young man with a AK-47 resting on the windowsill, quizzing me on who these people are and where we're going. And it's this kind of this thought of, do I speak Spanish with him and try to get out of this? Do I play dumb and see if he just lets us go? So there's two ways I would do this is I would up front would have uh, in the center console um, a Coca-Cola and a carton, just a single 20 pack of American cigarettes. And I'd say, would you like one of these? And that would work. And then after a while, I was like, you know what? I'm kind of tired of this. And so yeah. it happened again. And that man asked where we're going. I said, you know, we're helping to build the clinic down here near Tala Bay. Uh, we have a dentist. Bring your family tomorrow and let our dentist take care of your children. And he kind of looked at me quizzically and he said, why? Our dentist wants to help. And if your children have healthy teeth, they're going to smile more. And I was like, I hope this works because that gun is really close to me. Yeah. And he said, what time tomorrow? It's eight o'clock. We got there at eight o'clock the next morning and most of my guys are ready to do concrete work, but a few were ready to peel off with, with our dentist Aaron Marks. And the line was long. I mean, dozens of people had heard now. And we didn't get stopped again on that trip because we'd, I'd pull up that, that checkpoint and he'd just wave. Now you got a reputation. Because everybody, including he, had some dental work done. Um, but it was also kind of like, well, what if something goes wrong at a checkpoint? Like, you know, what if that gun doesn't have a safety? What if somebody in the back mouths off? What if you know, a narco trafficker drives by. Like, it's still a real this situation of, I don't belong here, and it wouldn't be very hard to disappear. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that would be something I'd think about a lot. Yeah, Wes, this is like, there's so much to unravel in all this. Like, you know, there's an element of service on these trips that you take, but then mm-hmm. there's also like, really like high danger. Like, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of fear that's baked into this. Like, what 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 motivates you like i mean there's a lot of different ways you could help people right you don't have to go deep into the jungle in honduras like why do you choose to do this so you're right there's a thousand different ways you can help people close to home far away um we looked at this as what's a really unique experience that only we can offer Mm -hmm. or very few can offer uh but also how do we like think about it from a leadership standpoint, how do we develop future leaders? Um, different philosophies come in, like a crucible experience where everybody goes to this challenge, like Navy SEALs or Marines, it's, you know, there it is. Um, what I liked was this is going to be a cross section of students from campus who may not know each other. Just like on my first trip, I knew one, not the other 11. Um, so we force these relationships because, hey, we're going to be in Honduras for a long time. Yeah. But also, when we pull people from their comfort zone and their support network, they get to see who they really are. Their values are tested. So, you know, as if going to college isn't enough of that. Uh, but now at work, when we're doing these physical things, you start to get to know somebody, but you also, it feels good to work hard, right? And it feels good at the end to say, man, I did that. I learned how to do this. I did that. But at night, we'd sit around and have conversations that I know did not take place typically in a fraternity house or in a dining hall about faith or values or a problem they had on campus or a professor or even my office. Like, do you have a problem with this policy? Let's talk about it. Let's get down into this. Um but it pulled them away from the distractions of their built-in friend groups and support groups. And now they really got challenged on, well, what do you think about immigration? What do you think about um, the role of women in society or 
the need for access to great health care. You know, this is still like pre-Obamacare kind of stuff. So it was, sure. you know, when you put people that far out of their comfort zone, they begin to take other chances, other risks at saying, you know, maybe I don't believe what I've been saying. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't actually want to vote that way. Or maybe you're not such a bad person. Maybe I'm not so good. Like maybe I do smell funny. Um, but then when they would get back to campus, it would mean like that group wouldn't have such animosity towards another because one of their leaders would say, and I know some of those guys, Yeah, they're good. They're good. We did that. And the service side and the adventure side was the vehicle. Yeah. Um, and that hit some people the wrong way because they want it to be the service part first. I totally get that. But that model's already out there. We wanted a different model. And I'm not saying ours is any better than anybody else's. Far from it. Um, our goal, though, was to use adventure to lure people in, service to lure them in to develop more complexly as an ethical leader and as a good human being. Yeah. I mean, like it did for you, like all those all those years ago when you raised your hand and said, I'm going. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, think I mean, really it changed my life. And so you're talking about like basically pulling people out of their comfortable environments and putting them in these kind of extreme adventure situations and mm-hmm. watching what unfolds. Like basically by doing that, you're opening up their own awareness and, and kind of expanding them into these great conversations. But one thing I love, again, like you said, as the dean of students, like, uh, the assistant, they would come in and they would either come in because they were in trouble or because yeah. of a leadership program. And what I'm hearing you say is like, you've combined both of these things. It's like trouble breeds leadership. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think back to that first leadership retreat. So the leadership program was called the, the Society of 1791, the first graduating class of Hamden Sydney College, which had eight members who went on to, to help change the face of the nation. But when General Wilson would talk about being in Merrill's Marauders in China, Burma, and India in 1943 and 44, he as a, like a 20-year-old lieutenant, he was the youngest lieutenant leading an intelligence platoon in the U.S. Army, recruited most of his reconnaissance scouts from the stockade, from the from jail, because they're risk takers. They skew rules. They don't like conventional leadership. Um, I am habitually a rule follower. Like I just, I just am. But a lot of these young men who were getting into disciplinary problems, wasn't because they're bad. They just didn't know how to deal with the challenges of leaving the nest, of the emotions of finding themselves, getting out of that comfort zone, peer pressure, um, so very few of them was like, you know what, you're really, you're a bad person. It was more, talk about what happened. They needed a purpose. They needed a cause. Um, and if you give them that opportunity, they'll take that energy from destruction to tremendous creation. And if I can get somebody to, instead of leading a bunch of, you know, vigilantes and ne'er-do-wells to leading a group of innovators, simply by saying, I see you and I believe in you. Yeah. That's so easy. So yeah, come on this trip and it's going to change how you see things. It's going to change yeah. how you view the world, how you view yourself. It's really important. Yeah. And and I want to, like, if we can talk about the fear element of this, because I think that, you know, the service piece is really important, but I think part of what, what you've done here is you've created these environments, like fear is a real thing in some of these situations yes. that you've been in. And I just wonder if you could kind of talk about like, the impact that that fear has had on you mm-hmm. and on the people that have come on your trips and just kind of elaborate on that a little bit. So fear is very real and is, I think, ever present. Fear is why people don't do a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. We don't go to certain places because they're dangerous. If you think a country's dangerous, read other countries' travel advisories to the United States. You will not want to travel to the United States. Um, and I tell folks that all the time when we out to the Jesse Browns, you know, let me pull data for you to tell you this stuff. I've been to Central America. I studied abroad in Spain. I've been to Italy, been on all these places, worked in a dude ranch. I never got hurt in Central America. I got sick one time, like, like a whole group got sick. And it was so bad. We, 
uh, had to burn the tents, set everything on fire and left. Um, but you can get over that. Like you can eat yeah. bananas and drink some water and you'll be okay. Um, but you know, I got concussions playing football and lacrosse. I tore a knee to pieces playing lacrosse, um, knocked out all my teeth riding a skateboard as a kid. Can't ride skateboards for anything. Never had a, a, a truly negative experience in Central America. I'd say, you know what? We should not take people here. I can plan contingencies around if things go wrong, how to avoid problems. Um, but you know, I was a white collar suit and tie guy uh, up until 2017. I worked for Wake Forest Business School, Uptown Charlotte, which is in yeah. a Bank of America building. Yeah. Mid morning, one day, went back to my truck to get earbuds because I had a call coming up um, mid morning and get jumped in the parking lot. And in the course of 15 or 20 seconds, uh, and then a knockdown drag out with two people I've never seen before in my life and get stabbed four times. Mm. Um, and, you know, People will say, Uptown's safe. Maybe it is, but for me, it's a place that I, I hold differently. Parking garages to me are, are scarier than Central America yeah. um, because I've never been hurt down there. Yeah. Those people never cause problems. So, um, and it's interesting because it took me a long time, it took me years to really accept that and to really embrace that fear. There's two, like for me, there's two fears. One is, um, hey, this activity looks kind of scary. Like when Bill and I repelled off of a roof, but I'd been skydiving, so I was like, I can do that. Yeah. Fears that I want to conquer. And then there are those fears like things that go bump in the night or the fears that live psychologically very deep in our brains those are much more challenging to conquer, but they both are related. And how do we beat them? With people who know how. Like, if you want to travel to this place, let me help you. We'll develop a plan so you can have a great time. And if things go weird, you'll be okay. Just like working with professionals about, I have this thing going on and it's causing these problems. Here's how you deal with that. So mm -hmm. I went from being a vigilant person on these trips, knowing how to navigate things, knowing that my first aid kit, I was an EMT and a wilderness EMT for those trips. Like I had all this extra training. So if you right. got hurt, I can fix you. So I'm from being vigilant to for years, not realizing that I was being what people in healthcare call hypervigilant. Yeah. So aware of what's around me that, you know, you're always just about to have an anxiety attack or a panic attack. Um, and it changes your life because you don't do certain things because that may be scary. That may be bad. I may not like that. I may not know how to get out. And over time have helped, you know, kind of learn how to, to work against that and how to let that voice get a little bit quieter because it is hard to turn off vigilance and hypervigilance. Um, but I tell people who, who want to hear it, um, there are places in the world you probably shouldn't go. Like, Scott, you and I don't need to go to a war zone. We're not right. combat journalists. We're not soldiers. Right. We don't need to go there. Um, right. I don't need to go to Antarctica. I'm from the South. I'll freeze. It's just too cold. Um, <laughs> it'd be neat to see if we could take a heater with us. Um, but as far as saying like broad brush strokes, you shouldn't go to that neighborhood. You shouldn't go to that country. Like Central America is not safe. I felt safer in Central America than in large portions of America. It seems like you can go to Central America and be in this place that has all of these perceived dangers that a lot yeah. of our listeners might be listening. Like, I'm not going there. That sounds crazy. I don't want to get stopped by like military personnel holding sure. AK-47. Like, that's scary. I don't want to do that. But but you were prepared and you were vigilant and you're like aware of what's going on and kind of prepared on how to handle it. Whereas like, you know, sometimes here in Charlotte, North Carolina or anywhere in the United States, where we're just living our normal lives and we're getting in and out of cars. Like we kind of lose sight of that and we lose that vigilance yeah. and we're, you know, and then all of a sudden smack, we get hit with something completely unexpected. If you look at the, the, the list from any reputable healthcare group, CDC, anybody's, you know, top 10 causes of death, none of them were travel. Yeah. Um, they're all cardiovascular, diabetes, cancer, uh, you know, 
2021, 1,700 people were killed in North Carolina in motor vehicle collisions, uh, which with our population is about one in 500, one in 600 people. Um, none of these are travel related. Well, I mean, the car part might be, but there's no travel has risk. It's most likely going to be TD, traveler's diarrhea. So take some Imodium, take some Pepto, know which one to take and when, drink bottled water. But don't not see the world. Don't not meet new people. I mean, you think like Europe has its risks too. People love Europe. Central America is incredible if you give it a chance. Um, so is America, right? Like I'm not against America in any, at any step of the way because there are places here people won't go. Like, oh, I don't know about that. Like, try it. Well, what, what I'm hearing you say is, I mean, fear ultimately is a tool because like when you feel that fear and you can use it to your advantage, like you, you can use that fear to become aware and to become vigilant. And, and yeah. I think part of the problem is with getting in and out of our car every day is like, you know, we do it so much that we don't feel that fear. And so like, we kind of lose sight of that vigilance and, and here we are driving down the road, looking at our phone, texting and doing all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, wham. And if that fear was there, perhaps some of that stuff wouldn't happen. You know, the um, when I went through EMT training and then through the emergency vehicle operators course training to drive ambulances and fire trucks and first responder vehicles, uh, they kept beating us over the head with the minute you turn on the lights and sirens, there's a 50% increase in the likelihood of you being involved in a collision, either because of a distracted driver or because you're going to go too fast and you're going to think everybody's going to move for you. So you have to balance that. So it's like, here's all this extra training. You have lights, you have sirens, but also human element can still mess things up. Um, fear to me is like an emotional spice and you need a little bit of it, but too much of it ruins the dish. Yeah. Otherwise, if you don't have that, there really isn't a balance. You know, you really can't have good without bad. You just have a thing. Plenty of these fears in life, like learning to ride a bike or swimming or driving or travel, as you conquer it, you feel your posture changed. You go, man, I should do more of this. And it's like, I like this. I can go, I can go to the mountains. I can go fishing. I can do these things. And it becomes one more ever expanding set of skills or experiences. You go, I really had a great time doing that. So without a little bit of that fear, yeah. um, you're just kind of traveling. You're just doing something, which is totally fine. Yeah. But that little bit also keeps you honest about, I should probably pack Band-Aids. <laughs> Preparation. It's, it's yeah. great wisdom as we sort of wrap up here, Wes. I, I, I think what I'd like to, to finish with is just your advice on this idea of fear. Like if there are people, this mm. whole podcast is about encouraging people to listen to the voice inside that calls us to adventure. And I think a lot of times it's fear that stops us from listening to that voice and doing mm -hmm. some of these things that we really want to pursue. So what would your advice be for people um, that are letting fear get in the way and, um, and, and how to overcome it? So there's usually two voices. One saying we should go do this thing. That looks like fun. And then there's the other voice, which is like, that looks like it's going to hurt or that's going to be expensive or I'm not there yet. So, you know, balance those, you know, if you're not there yet, why? If it's too expensive, okay, you can save up. You know, if you really want to go, set aside a little bit, keep it within the budget, um, or don't stay in such a nice hotel, right? Like you can make this thing work, do it differently. If it's because of a fear of injury, well, work with the right people, right? So when I went skydiving, I didn't do it on my own. I went with a skydiving outfit who knows what to do. Um, and that changed everything. It's like, now I trust you. Yes. And we've checked our gear 10 times. Looks good to me. Looks good to you. Let's do this. Um, just like, you know, when I was playing sports, we didn't just like on the first day play a game. You train and you build up to it. Um, just like we study for tests. Um, so what's holding us back? And then let's let's confront it and say, like, like give it a name. Write down about it. Think about it talk to somebody else. And I would say, you know, we do this a lot at Jesse Brown's is let's get you ready. So your experiences are positive and your expectations are exceeded. And if you really don't want to go, don't, 
Like, I mean, you don't have to do it, but maybe, maybe you'll really actually want to go and you go, this was awesome. I really liked fly fishing or I really liked camping for the first time. Or you know what? Italy was great, but Croatia was amazing. And we never even thought about it because it's not in the guidebook. Like talk to folks who you trust and say, how could we do this and it not be awful? All right, we can do and that. I, and I bet if you're in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you're feeling some fear, but you want to go on a trip, you can probably come in to Jesse Brown's and talk to Wes yeah. or Bill Barty yeah. and get some get some encouragement. Yeah, well, and and, and I, <laughs> like when I get people ready for these international trips, I give you all this information, and part of it is the scary stuff, like the crime stuff. Part yeah. of that here's the list of numbers if something does go wrong here's some hospitals yeah. park that too now get rid of the worry yeah go have your experience have a great time eat the food drink the bottled water do these fun things but also if things do go wrong now you know how to combat that you know what that situation yeah. um yeah. yeah and pack band-aids and pack it you know ibuprofen and emodium and that kind of stuff and you'll be fine like it's yeah. gonna be okay we can get through this Y'all at Jesse Browns can get people ready. So Wes, two final questions just to kind of mm. wrap things up here um, because you have some unbelievable stories on the Appalachian Trail in Belize and Honduras. Yeah. Like at some point, Wes, Hollywood's going to pick up on you and your life and they're going to want to make a movie about you. And I want to know when they do, who's going to be the actor that's going to play you in your movie? Jason Sudeikis, probably because people oh, have said, like, okay. they're like, you kind of look like him. Yeah, if I could, shave, I totally, I I totally see that. Kind of get some Ted Lasso. You um, could totally do Ted Lasso. I'm seeing it right now. So I guess I need to polish up and watch a few episodes. So I think Denzel is out. He'd do a good job, but I think he would do a good job. But I, I definitely see the Jason Sudeikis uh, um, resemblance. So that's good. What's your movie going to be called? So I think this would be a tip of the cap to Ben Mathis, who always started his stories with, so there we were. I think it's, so there we were. Yeah, so there we were starring yeah. Jason Sudeikis. I love it. That's that's going to be a killer movie. I can't wait to watch it. So he's kind of a funny guy. Is there going to be some humor in this movie? So we didn't cover any of the funny stories. Like We didn't cover <laughs> anything that was you funny. You did another podcast would for that. I would tell you that most of these experiences, most of those trips were... Um, I mean, at times choking with laughter. I mean, just absolutely hilarious. The guys in the back of that bus or the van who were singing and telling jokes going down the mountain were dying with laughter because they thought they were going to die. Um, but yeah, there were, I mean, there were some things that happened that was like some of our spouses probably don't even know about it because they would be like, <laughs> I married a moron. Uh, I love it. Well, we might have to do part two. Today was the the scary stuff and the fear, right. and next time will be the, right. the funny jokes. But uh, I really appreciate you spending the time with me today. And for those listening, I hope you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope that Wes's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure, because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. And when you do, go see Wes at Jesse Brown's and he'll get you all the gear that you need. Thank you so much for listening. Wes, thank you so much for being here today. This was awesome. Scott, thank you for having me on and for all that you do, getting people to get out of their comfort zone. It's just incredible.